Welcome to We Are Vodafone, a new podcast series where we'll bring together people from very different parts of the organisation to hear their opinions, theories, fears, passions and successes. Over the course of this series, we'll explore the subjects that matter most to you and how they impact on your life. I'm Cara McGugan, a journalist and podcaster. And in this third episode, we're going to talk about male mental health, resilience and finding hope after trauma. In this episode, I'm meeting James, who spent a lot of his teenage years as hidden homeless. He's shown a huge amount of courage in talking publicly for the first time. He's told me how he got through that time and found a happier life, as well as how he's continuing to care for his mental health. To begin, I asked him how he decided to get involved with the series. I think it was because I saw an advert that said, have you got an interesting story to tell? I thought, I'll get in touch. The story I I originally came up with wasn't the one that I'm going to go with today. It was more comedy value, whereas what I'm going to talk about today is a bit more hard-hitting. Hopefully, people can learn from what I'm going to talk about today. Hopefully, someone will benefit. So do you want to start by taking us back to the beginning of your story? I was 14 years old, and my family um, fell on hard times. First of all, they lost the business and then they decided to not carry on the marriage so what we did as a family we we all pretty much split up my mum left the house and my sister stayed at boarding school and then moved somewhere else with her boyfriend and I stayed with my dad the first year or so was good he got another job we had a bit of a laugh a good time then all of a sudden we just kept missing each other so I was still at school through the day and he worked in a pub so he worked at at nights a lot of the time and sometimes in the morning getting ready for the day so we lived a lot of it by notes I could just leave a note saying we need some food and leave us some money or he'd do a food shop or I need money for the bus to get me to school and stuff like that and everything was was going okay and, and fine. How long would it go that you wouldn't see him? Probably at this stage four to five days it was probably the longest it just came quite normal sometimes if you had a day off say Monday Tuesday I'd see him after school or something but that gradually got longer and longer. It probably went went up to months by the end of it. At 15, I sort of saw a decline in my dad when I did see him, that he wasn't himself. He, he, he didn't talk to me and pretty much hid. He stopped coming home. I don't, I'm not overly sure where he was. There was no evidence that anybody was in the house other than myself. And these notes started to get ignored. And after a while, there's no no money for food. I relied on a paper round money. I was earning £8 a week, sometimes 10 or 11 with tips. And this wasn't years and years and years ago when £8 was a lot of money. It was a struggle. It was a small amount of money to get me through a week. What I ended up doing was walking to school, saving the money from the bus. And it was five miles there, five miles back. So it was a long, long journey, but it was pivotal. I kept that money that I didn't spend it on, on sitting on a bus. That was emergency for food how did you make sure that that money lasted you for the week would you buy specific things in order to save it yeah i often lived on pot noodles they were quite cheap at the time bread and cheese slices tabasco sauce to get me through my weeks when it started to get a little bit harder so there was sometimes i'd come back we were on an electric meter and a gas meter if we ran out it was an empty house it was a, a cold empty house it was dark and there was no electric and on them occasions, I'd use some of the money to get fish and chips from the chip shop. And what I would do with that is I'd hold it up my jumper whilst it was really warm to keep me warm. 
until the chips went really cold until they were pretty pretty inedible but i still ate them that was more of a an instinct of i needed something warm uh, next to me to keep keep me warm uh, through the through the night and at that point you're still in your house but without your dad there i was still in the house uh, without my dad and i was still at school i was getting up early doing a paper round going to school and, and coming back and then it did get a bit too hard to go home it was the fear of not knowing whether i was going to have electric heating food hot water and anything in the house whether it was just gonna be an empty shell i started staying at friends houses i didn't tell any of them anything that i was going through i felt ashamed embarrassed at 15 as well you're quite conscious of what people think of you how you do get a bit nervous and it's stuff like that so i didn't i didn't say anything and i just stayed at houses so i lived in a place called crew and the school was in nantwich a lot of my friends live like Nantwich area or further further from crew than would have liked from a paper round because it was desperate that I got to that paper round in the morning to get me that money to last me the week. So luckily I had a girlfriend who lived in crew and she was happy to help me out. I did tell her a lot about what was going on. Let's say she was similar age, had her own issues going on. She lived with a nan and stuff. So it wasn't something that she could turn around and help me out with or even a nan could help me out with. She would get my paper round for me if I wasn't able to make it home if I was staying at friends houses she would get my paper around for me and help me out in that sense I depended on that so much that I didn't have to worry about getting home and making sure that that I had some sort of income I don't really think friends got suspicious I, I think for the first few stages I, I was quite clever I, I stayed a couple of nights didn't overstay my welcome then I'd stay a couple of nights somewhere else with a friend that didn't really know the other friend that I stayed at and then I'd stay at another friend's for a couple of nights and they wouldn't know it was such a lifesaver at these houses and as much as the parents and that uh, my mate friends at the time didn't probably know they were helping me out it was so nice to have a cooked meal a shower one of the biggest paranoias which is still with me now I still get really paranoid about it is smelling I had this fear of being the smelly kid but I was so grateful of staying at people's houses when I did to, to get the showers and, and the food. As time went on, I probably stayed at friends' houses and that more than I should have done to keep it a secret. People started asking me questions as such as you haven't been home in about two weeks. Where are you folks to find out where you are? And people started to turn it around and find it find it very strange that no one had actually come to find me. I think some parents must have found it weird that I'd asked them to wash my school uniform sometimes. They did it, but never really asked the question why are we doing this why aren't you going home and did any teachers ever ask you any questions no I'm so happy of how far things have come and how different things are nowadays to to when I was at school that I just kept getting in trouble if I wore a shirt that wasn't the right color so when I have a clean pale blue shirt I'd sometimes get a shirt from a charity shop or I'd borrow one out of my dad's wardrobe and it'd be like a darker blue and I'd just get detentions or sent home no one really asked the question of why why are you wearing this? And I was hungry all the time. I, I was so hungry constantly. And I made friends with um with a lad who, he didn't really need to go to school. His parents didn't push him and he was truant a lot. But school didn't do anything about it. They just let it be and he didn't need to go. I used to get his free dinners because he got free dinners and I used to sign, sign his name and pretend I was him. And I had spoken to him about what I was doing, so I was getting his free dinners when he came in. But one day he was there and I wasn't in that day and he um, he went and got his school dinner and they wouldn't let him have it. And for that, I got suspended and detentions. 
no one actually asked me, why would you do that? Why would you be stealing someone's dinner? Why have you needed this free dinner? No one delved into investigate why or even visit my house. I got a letter to take home, like, just take this to your parents because we're not happy with you here and no one investigated it. Whereas nowadays you wouldn't get away with that. I think somebody would would be there. Yeah, it's really bad looking back, isn't it, that you didn't have that support and that people didn't notice. But academically, you kind of really pushed on, didn't you? I did, yeah. I was quite adamant that that's how I was going to get out of the situation, that the only way forward for me was education to get a job. After this, I I did realise that I can't live like this forever. At one point, we lost the house. I went back home and the landlord had come and, and kicked us out. So at this point... When I wasn't staying at friends' houses, it was the streets. So I'd stay in alleyways and behind a, a billboard sign. But what I'd do in, in spare time, so like weekends and stuff, was probably a dream for a lot of kids. For me, it was, I've got nowhere to go for two days. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I would potentially just sit in a library. Library had free water, shelter, and you can read books all day. But I'd use that time to, to study, to pass my GCSEs, which I did. I managed to get into college. College, there was probably more freedom. It got to a point where my living situations overruled any type of learning as much as I I knew that I needed A-levels and I wanted to learn and and to get a a career. I got kicked out in the end of of college. I just put it on the back burner. I I couldn't even think of, right, that's where I need to be. It wasn't until probably the end of end of term of that first year when my friends all passed the first year of college that I decided to start fresh a different college and I was determined I spoke to a tutor about what was going on in my home life they helped me they, they supported me they didn't mind if there was days I missed lessons and they never made me feel bad for missing lessons they just said we understand and we'll help you out they even managed to sort out a shelter for me so I stayed in a shelter through my college and that was horrible, absolutely horrible. As bad as that sounds, as the first person I've opened up to and the first person that helped me, it's it's not gone the way I would have liked or have needed it to go. <laughs> I do I do feel bad now. That I said it was horrible, but it really really was. It was there was no category that put you with people that have just been released from prison or people that have been recovered from a drug addiction that have just come out of a rehabilitation centre. And this would be a halfway house for them. I did not feel comfortable at all. And there was things banging and screaming through the night. It was, it was scarier than actually sleeping rough in alleyways where it's quite quite peaceful and quiet in against this shelter. So I left there and uh, I went back to the sleeping rough. And then there was someone else that helped you that kind of really changed your life. So this was this was the changing point for for everything really. I bumped into a, a friend's mum whilst I was in town, sleeping rough and just having small talk. She basically asked me where I'm living and what I'm up to now and stuff. I went, well, I go college down there and I live here where we stood. <laughs> I expected her to laugh and just go, yeah, yeah, great, move on. But no, she she took that serious, which is brilliant because as much as I said it in a jokey way, it was serious and she helped me out. She put me in the spare room and helped me out with everything. So I got through college, I had showers again, I had meals, a roof. By this point, I, was, I had found my dad and we were building our relationship again and she'd drive me to meet him, drop me off. 
she even helped me with an application for housing. I'd managed to get a job. I saw light at the end of the tunnel and I managed to get the flat through the council, this council flat. I had my own flat. I had a job and then I was doing really well at A-levels. I was making it to college and things were looking up. Things were going well. And just while we're in this part of your story, to jump ahead slightly, you now got a relationship with that friend. I have, yeah. So the friend's mum who helps me out, I've now I've married her daughter. Uh, she's my wife and mother of my child. We've been friends since we were 11. So I have spoke to her a lot about what was going on at the time through school. And she just seems shocked sometimes of, she, uh, we wouldn't, I've never noticed, none of my friends ever noticed through school. You hit it really well. And it's a bit of a shock to hear about it now. But yeah, I ended up uh, marrying my saviour's daughter. <laughs> So at this point, as I mentioned, things are going well. I've got my flat, I've got my job, and I'm, I'm doing well at A-levels. It wasn't until I spoke to my tutor, the one that was helping me out, and university became an option. She spoke to me about what doors that would open, the courses that are available. And by this point, I was I was probably tired a little bit, a bit like, I just want to get up, go to work and, and come home. But I decided, you know what, it's a good idea, I think, not just thinking of the next few months, years, this is is for my future, for my career, for for when I'm older and I've got a family to look after. I decided that university was the, the way to go. So we decided on a course, business and IT, or business information and IT, because that was, that was the future. We uh, enrolled me at Liverpool. We've talked about some of the survival techniques already, but are there any other things that you feel like you've learned from going through this quite difficult childhood and teenage years that you've brought into adult life with you? Yeah, there's lots of things I've learned. Things I'm, I'm still learning now. Number one is talking about hard issues and things that upset you and showing your emotions. Up until now, I'd not really spoken about my childhood because I was so ashamed even till recent years and embarrassed by it. I didn't talk at all. I just um, buried it deep. So it's bringing out all the emotions again and, and going through it again but as much as that hurts for a day the day after that I feel so much better so fresher through my earlier career as stressed as I used to get with with work and getting jobs done and, and that it was nice to just think it's not that bad sometimes when I'm upset angry or, or stressed you just think you know what I've been through worse this is nothing I'm not probably not even gonna remember this in a few months and then you sort of feel feel better I also like goal setting I think throughout the whole process I'd have the, my little goals to get me through the day of like I'm gonna to get to school today and how am I gonna hide the fact that I'm homeless then it'd become like a weekly mission of like what can I put together to by the end of this week get all my courseworks in but also make sure I've eaten enough food make sure that I've still got some money left that I'd, I'd saved it wasn't until it dawned on me, I think it was when all my friends passed the first year of college and they were all excited about getting, they'd just done their AS levels, they're going to do A levels and go to uni and have this future plan. I thought, I need a goal. I could spiral down a darker path if I just keep planning my days and my weeks. I need a, a future goal. So that's still something I do now, as cheesy as that sounds. It's something I've taken with me of, I now need to see where I'm going to be in the next five years. How can I get to that? And then smaller goals to get me to that five-year goals probably change it here and there depending on situation. But as long as I know what it is I want, I seem to be able to get on fine. That's very admirable. How do you support your own mental health, you know, not putting too much pressure on yourself and also making sure that you do stay well? Once it all 
finished and I finished uni and got a, a graduate job, I felt that everything was okay. I'd got through the hard part and it's not the case. It's something that I still struggle with. It was worse um, in my mid-twenties. I would have terrible nightmares. I didn't sleep for years, even afterwards. That I just thought it was normal to three, four hours sleep a night. It was something that crept up on me that I didn't see coming. And I did have a, two breakdowns probably in my life from my past because I didn't deal with it, didn't talk about it. What I do is now talk, talk about it. I talk with my wife. I bring it up with my friends, uh, my family. Family not so much because it gets a little bit <laughs> difficult because they start to feel guilty and stuff at that point. But you did reconnect with both your mum and your dad. I speak to my mum quite regularly, but my dad became a best friend. The things my dad was going through, the older I got, the more life I lived. And I forgave him. I, I thought, you know what, well, you had a difficult time. You had a breakdown. If, if anything, I wish I'd spoke to him back then. But 14, 15-year-old boy is not going <laughs> to bring that up with his dad. But it's um, something I'm going to probably take on my adventure as a dad with my son. I think I'm going to make sure he feels comfortable talking about his emotions and might even let him know days where I'm upset or angry and recently my grandma passed away and I, I cried and I cried in front of him and he was so comforting and so nice and cuddled up to me and made sure I was better in the past I'd been ashamed like that I would have only cried when I was on my own or away from people but I thought you know I'm upset now I'm just gonna let it let it go that's great that you've got to that point now so in the workplace how have you taken your experience and you know learned from it what has it taught you about your work and your job I've probably struggled on a, or felt that I've struggled on a personal level for going up the ladder of companies, even in a social context. I don't, in a group of people, I don't ever feel comfortable. And I have this sort of inner monologue that's constantly telling me that I'm not the same as everyone else. I'm just different. I do blame my past. And it was only recently I've, I've learned the term imposter syndrome and I've looked into this as some of the things I've learned about imposter syndrome does relate to how I feel. I do sometimes don't feel that I'm good enough, that the work I do is probably not at the, the standard. Sometimes I feel like I'm a needy member of staff. I'm sometimes like, please tell me it's good enough and keep me up to date, that you're happy with my work and my output. By reading up on it, have you learned any strategies or things that you can help in kind of addressing imposter syndrome? Yeah, a lot of it is about learning how to deal with the mistakes you've made so not dwelling too much on the fact you've made a mistake that everyone makes mistakes and you not made a mistake just because you don't feel you're as good as everyone else everyone makes a mistake but how to deal with it afterwards because they say that that's a lot of it but to be fair I think actually it's quite good if you can speak to your manager and say are you happy with the work I'm doing because that reassurance I'm sure actually helps both of you in your working relationship but then I do think maybe this imposter syndrome kicks in straight afterwards. So I recently booked in a one-to-one. -one. I just needed some reassurance and guidance that I'm going down the right right route. As we finished the call, I was like, why did I do that? Why was I so needy? Why did that even cross my mind that I wasn't doing a good enough job? Surely someone would tell me if I wasn't doing a good enough job. Do you know that sort of attitude? That's difficult, isn't it? Because you go to work still as yourself and with all your past and your history behind you. But, you know, it's not necessarily something that you tell your colleagues and they don't know that all the things that are playing in your head are because of all the experiences that you've gone through in your past. So hopefully they'll listen to this now. And that leads us nicely to uh, one of my last questions, which is what it's meant for you to share your story for the first time. 
this month has been been hard but my wife has been brilliant through it she's been understanding she's given me space when i needed space she's been there when i needed to talk she even got to a point where she says right we're talking because you're uh, being an idiot it's probably going to affect me for for the rest of today and then i'll feel new again i'll feel refreshed and what my plan is now is to get help professional help dealing with it because everything i'm doing at the moment i'm either looking on the internet or just talking and i don't know if there's ever a cure for mental health nor you just have to exercise it and learn as you go and try and recognize the signs of when you're feeling low and down or or if there's actually a time where it'll just disappear and i'll actually be be clear of it i have struggled to get help externally through through the nhs in the past with a a few declines because i'm not at the the state that they require me i've not hit the score that's required the samaritans have been great i've phoned them a fair few times i did see the stigma of samaritans as suicidal and i've never been at that i've never been to a point where i don't want to want to live so i've never thought of phoning them but there was one day that i decided that I'm just gonna see what it's like i'm just gonna gonna do it i'm i'm sad i haven't slept for a week and i thought you know what i'm just gonna give them a call and it was brilliant but yeah it's probably ideal or a time now to look at how vodafone deal with it and what they offer yeah that's good now that it's making you think of other services that you can seek out and talking about this has made you think about how you might be able to help other people that are in similar situations or have been through similar experiences. Yeah, it's something that's always always sort of been on my mind of, of how can I help someone that's in that situation now? I think, first of all, talking about it is number one. So I've done that bit. I've considered speaking to the school I went to and just seeing if they want me to do a talk or phone in the shelter that I went to and see if there any sort of volunteer work. I do sort of feel like I've got to a point where I want to give something back now to some, some of the services that helped me out, but also I've got that advice there. I can let people know that there's a way out, you know, offer guidance. But it's great you've got to that point where you are thinking about that. In terms of your family who have really been there for you and sort of changed things a lot, is there kind of anything that you want to say about your son and your wife and kind of how you take this experience to be with them i always had this fear of showing emotions my dad was solid he never cracked and as much as that's admirable thing to do that he can put on a brave face and not everybody wants someone that's just going to always be emotional and always going on on about their issues i'm just going to make sure my son knows it's okay that if he's sad he's upset then he's he can always come to me the other thing i really want him to do is make decisions based on wanting to make the decision not survival or necessity and i want him to be comfortable i want him to know that when he finishes school if he's had a bad day that he can come home and there's definitely going to be heating hot water if he wants a bath there's going to be food i know it sounds strange to say i want him to have a normal normal life and right at the beginning we talked about how you want to share your story because you know, it shows that things can get better. So I thought it might be nice to finish with the question of what are your hopes for the future? My future plan is to be successful in my job, to have a, a career that's dependable, a, a strong company. So therefore I can provide for my family and be able to achieve all the things I've just mentioned. I want to make sure there's a safe environment for my son and my wife, that we live happy, happy and we're able to do the normal things that everyone does. I sort of want to make people realise and listen to this that as, as hard as things are, as difficult as some things can be, that as much as it's dark and troublesome at, at times now, that 
it's not always going to be like that. There's going to be a way out of it. Surely there's a way of getting through this to a to a happy ending. I think it's very inspiring. And thank you for sharing your story. I know it has been difficult talking about it, but we really appreciate it. Well, thank you for, for listening and having me on. I hope you've been as moved and inspired as I have by James's story, ways he's found to recover from a traumatic past and how he cares for his mental health. This has been We Are Vodafone, a podcast series brought to you by Vodafone for Vodafone people. If you want to find out more, head to the resources in the show notes below. Thank you.